0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's always a blessing for Carolee and me to return to Desert Springs and be with our dear friends, have your love on us. Uh, So it's always good to be back. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that in just a moment. But... uh, let me pray for us as we look into God's inerrant, infallible word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word before us this morning. There's so much here in these, just these three little short verses that we, we really can't do it justice, but we can, I believe, I hope, sketch its meaning for our own living as Christian men and women, looking to head to what you have in store for us in 2020. So help us now to love, to understand, and apply this word that you've provided for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had the TV news on. That's always kind of dangerous. Uh, uh, I don't know why that I had it on. It's mostly all bad or contentious, very depressing. But it's interesting there was one story that caught my attention. It was about a long freight train that had jumped the tracks and crashed. I believe it was somewhere on the east coast, I'm not really sure. I think maybe Virginia, but it was pretty ugly. It was a massive pileup close to the highway for a long time. People just sat there in their cars for a long time before they could clear the highway. You know, when When a train jumps the tracks, it just sits there. It's one big, huge mess. Well, in the beginning of time, God laid a track. He laid a path for his creation to follow. And this path led toward a grand and glorious destiny for God's creation. But we know the story. Time and again, we human beings have failed to follow God's path for his creation. We've jumped the tracks. We've derailed the world and ended up up with one great big huge mess. And so the book of Genesis, wonderful book, it teaches us about the track that God laid down for his creation in the earliest years of world history and beyond. It's what we call in Christian circles creation ordinances. And Genesis helps us see the amazing path that God wanted the people of Israel to follow under the leadership of Moses. And of course Genesis also shows us the path we're to follow even today. So Genesis is a fabulously important book of the Bible. It lays the foundation not only for a biblical worldview or philosophy of life, it provides the foundation for the entire edifice, the entire system of Christian doctrine, as that doctrine is taught throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, you certainly have noticed this in your own reading of the Bible. Everything looks back to Genesis and to its account of the creation, the fall, the first workings of the grace of God in the life of mankind. Biblical theology, ethics, and spiritual experience is all first taught and illustrated in this first book of the Bible. The corrupting power of sin, the redemption, transformation of human life by the grace of God. This is the great story of Genesis the fall of the world into sin and death. God's plan to redeem the world, of which we first read in Genesis 3.15, are the grand assumptions that lie beneath everything else we're going to read later in the Word of God. So everything in human life comes back to this foundation in Genesis. You know, when, for example, Paul wanted to demonstrate that the only way sinners can be put right with God is through faith in Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. He turned in both Romans and Galatians to the story of Abraham in Genesis. Now, the classical biblical illustration of Paul's New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone turns out to be the account of the life of Abraham that begins in Genesis 12. I think it's also very instructive to note just how often the Lord Jesus goes right back to the very beginning to establish a particular teaching. For instance, when He's interacting with the Pharisees about the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, He cuts through all the hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition He takes the Pharisees right back to those opening chapters of Genesis. Why is adultery wrong, Jesus asked? Why is it so destructive of human happiness and well-being? Because when God made human beings, male and female, he also ordered marriage for them as an exclusive family-making institution. Adultery violates the intrinsic order of things as God made them in the beginning. That's why adultery is wrong. Why is human life so sacred and murder so egregious a crime? Because man was made in the image of God. So if you think about it, homicide is really a kind of deicide. Why is the Sabbath sacred among the other days of the week? Because God himself rested on the seventh day after the work of creation, and he established that same pattern for human life. It was to be the beneficial rhythm of life for his creatures made in his image. We're going to get into that in more detail. So Genesis is foundational to all that comes after it in God's Word. So let me just give a quick summary of Genesis 1, and we'll get into the text. Look back at Genesis 1. The first two verses of the Bible, they form sort of a preface to the description of creation, telling us the way in which the world was brought into being, what it was originally like. And then from verse 3 down to verse 31, we get all the details on the kind of work that God was doing on each of the days of creation. So the first three days of forming creation and the concluding three days of filling it, capped off by the creation of man, left creation lacking nothing. All that God had made was worthy of praise. And as such, in verse 31, he gave it his highest commendation. You know what he said. He said it was very good the well-ordered planet swarmed with life under the joyous watch of the first couple, Adam and Eve. And so this finally, finally takes us to our text for today. God had formed and filled the earth, and now on the seventh day he rested. So let me read for you Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let me ask you a question. How was this seventh day significantly different from the first days of creation? Well, let me just answer that for you. First of all, I think you've noticed there was no creation formula, and God said, which we find in chapter 1 in a variety of verses. There was none of that in verse 7. God didn't need to say anything else on the seventh day because his creative work wasn't required. It's all done. I think that's a significant difference. Also, the seventh day did not have the usual closing refrain for the other days. And there was evening and there was morning to indicate the end of the day. In other words, day seven, in a sense, it's open-ended. It's eternal. The seventh day, interesting enough, was the only day to be blessed and made holy by God. The seventh day stood outside the paired days of creation because there was no corresponding day to it as in the pre- preceding six, i.e., day one's paired with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six. There was no corresponding day, day Also, unlike the six creative days, the number of the day, the seventh day, is repeated three times in these verses. So all of these things I think indicate that this seventh day was different. It stands apart as the crown to the six days of creation. And I think it indicates not only immense literary genius on the part of Moses who wrote it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but also very deep theological significance. From the beginning of creation, The seventh day was central, not only to creation, but to the ultimate destiny of God's people. So we can't really do justice to the creation narrative of chapter 1 without giving careful attention to the conclusion of it and its impressive emphasis on the seventh day. So I want to take a look at that this morning. First, the seventh day marked the completion of God's special creative work. Now, there's a new phrase. We've already been told back in the first two verses of chapter one that God created the heaven and the earth. But there's this new phrase added here in Genesis 2 verse 1, and all the host of them. I'm persuaded that that's Moses' way of simply telling us that the entirety of creation has been made and it's been filled out. In other words, the work has been brought to a conclusion. We've gone from empty and without form to fullness, from the beginning of creation to the completion of creation. Creation is brought to a finish. It was finished, this distinctive creative work of God. Now, this is pretty interesting. This same Hebrew word for finish is used twice more in the Old Testament for important works of completion. Can you think of where that might be? Well, let me tell you. It's used for the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus. You know, if you've studied Exodus, you'll remember that for some 14 chapters, God gives specific instructions about the tabernacle and its contents, and exactly how it was to be made, who was to make it, what was going to be inside it. And in Exodus 40:33 we read, so Moses finished the work. Same word, used there of Moses' completion of the tabernacle as he used here in Genesis 2, 1 and 2. And then over in 2 Chronicles 7, 11, at the dedication of God's house, the temple which Solomon had built. We read, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. Finished. Same word. Now, it ought to encourage us that God brought to completion that which he set out to do in creation and also in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. He finished it. Where do you think you find that same terminology of finishing applied in the New Testament? I think you know the answer. John 19.30, John records for us, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. You know, those words are packed with significance. They indicate that Christ brought to completion that which was necessary for the work of our redemption. That is, to buy us back, to open the way to fellowship with God. He has brought that work of redemption to a close. It's done. The bill is paid in full. It's been marked off. No more will it be charged to our account. He has finished that work of redemption. I, I, I won't won't speak for you but all that gives me a great deal of confidence that when god promises that he will not leave me or forsake me and that the good work that he has begun in me he will bring to completion that he really means what he says he will do it why because here in genesis 2 verse 1 and elsewhere he finishes what he starts You know, I think of what Paul told the church at Philippi. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. When Christ begins a work in your heart, he's not going to take a hike. He's not going to go away. He holds on to that work all the way through, regardless of whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Dear ones, when your life is given to Jesus Christ... He holds it. He sustains it. And one day he will take it into God's very presence. So, today, as you peer into, I think, a you know, somewhat murky 2020, you, know, you don't know for sure what it's going to bring. Not to worry. Just remember that what God starts, he finishes, he completes. He perfects. He brings his work to conclusion. He will take his people safely home. Well, there's, <laughs> there's much more we could, we could say there, but we've got to hurry on. So look at verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, we learn something else. We learn that God rested. Verse 2 says, He rested from all his work. Verse 3 adds, he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You know, I think sometimes we were perhaps too familiar with those verses, you know, early here in Genesis 2, to fully appreciate just how striking, how unexpected, how full of significance they are. God made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain in six days. But why should God himself rest On the seventh day. Now, certainly, you know, the Almighty who brought all things into being by the mere utterance of His Word, certainly He wasn't tired. You know, He didn't need a breather. He didn't need to take a hike. He didn't need to take a nap. So, why did God rest on the seventh day? See, God's resting on the seventh day wasn't because He was tired. It was to bless or hallow, or sanctify the seventh day, to set it apart for a special use that had something to do with him. It was by his example to establish as a rule for mankind a, a rhythm, if you will, a rhythm of six days of labor and a seventh of spiritual rest. Spiritual rest, not simply physical rest, because God's rest was not the rest of inactivity, as the Bible teaches us. God continued to be active. You know, I think the author of the book of Hebrews picks up on this when he says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this verb upholds, it's in the present tense, always means continuous action. In other words, everything in the universe is sustained right now continuously by Jesus Christ. So God, God's rest, it's not the rest of inactivity. It was meant to be a pattern, it was meant to be a rhythm, meant to be a rule for mankind. And, I, you know, that God intended this resting To be a pattern for man, I think it's also demonstrated conclusively by the fourth commandment over in Exodus 20, which says that we're to work six days and rest a seventh. Why? Because that's what God did when he created the world. God could have made the entire world simply by snapping his fingers. But why did he make it then in six days and rest a seventh except as an example for man to follow. You know, I like what Dr. James Boyce says about all this. Uh, He says that what's involved here is what St. Augustine had in mind when, with his magnificent use of words, contrasted the rest of God with our own restlessness. You know the quote? Augustine said, thou hast made us for thyself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, Augustine was thinking of the turmoil of the human heart. He was saying that our true destiny is to find the rest that's found in God only. God, having completed his work of creation, rests. and he, As if to say to us, this is the destiny of those who are my people, to rest as I rest, to rest in me. You know, what's the the cause of restlessness in the human heart? You know, a lot of people say it's the pace of change in life. You know, we live fast lives. We're always running here and there. People say that. I suppose it could be. Augustine thought otherwise. He would say that the real cause of restlessness, you know where he's going. He's saying our basic problem is sin. Sin is what causes turmoil the heart. You know, maybe Augustine would have pointed us to those words of Scripture that speak of the wicked having lives that are like the churning sea that never rest. That's what sin causes. So what's the cure for restlessness? Well, it's very interesting that these verses in Genesis are picked up by the author of Hebrews in a chapter that's entirely given over to this subject. We read a little bit about that from Hebrews 3. But in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews talks about what he calls Sabbath rest. And he points out that when God led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness in their days of wandering, he had this goal to bring them to the promised land. It was to be a place where they could find rest from their wandering. It was a symbol of heaven. But the people rebelled, as we do. God judged that generation. The author quotes Psalm 95, verse 11, which God says, I declared on oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews asks, how can that be? Here's God who created a day of rest. He promises rest, yet swears that his people will never enter enter that rest. You know, how can that be? Well, he answers his own question. We don't enter into rest because we will not come to God at that point at at which rest may be found, namely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this author exhorts the people of his day. Not to go on, as those people did who perished in the wilderness, about whom these things were said. Rather strive to enter into God's rest, he says. Cast off sin. Cast off everything that keeps you from Christ. Come in the fullness of faith to rest in him. That's Hebrews 4. Wonderful chapter. Go home and read it this afternoon. Sin's the cause of restlessness. Sin's the problem with which we have to deal. The problem is, is that we can't deal with it. (laughs) We can't handle it. We're sinners. But the Lord Jesus Christ not only can, he does. He comes, he dies, he pays the penalty for our sin, he opens the door into the presence of God for all who believe in him. Then God on the basis of the death of Christ, pronounces the believing one justified. That one now stands before the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Dear ones, as long as we live on this earth, on this mortal coil, we're going to be troubled by sin. We're sinners. But we can begin to enter into God's rest now. We can look forward to that day when we will be made like Jesus, stand before God in holiness. You know, Augustine, he knew from experience that life apart from Christ is just striving. It's just spinning our wheels. Man will remain restless regardless of what they attain, regardless of what they obtain in this world. He recognized that we will never find rest apart from redemption in Christ. And that brings us to our final point. God blessed and made holy the seventh day. Verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And what does it mean that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy? Let's, let's take blessed first. What does it mean that God blessed the seventh day? Well, first and foremost, I think it means that God made it spiritually fruitful. You know, we know that the two preceding blessings in the creation account in chapter 1, first on the living creatures and then on Adam and Eve, bestowed fertility. Because in both instances, God said, be fruitful and Multiply. And I think the meaning here in verse 3 is essentially the same in in the spiritual realm. God's blessing bestows on this special, holy, solemn day. He gives it a power which makes it fruitful for human existence. God's blessing gives the day which is a day of rest. He gives it the power to the power to stimulate, the power to animate, the power to enrich, and the power to give fullness to life. You know, as Boyce puts it, the seventh day is one of perpetual spring. It's a day of multiplication and fruitfulness. God hallowed the seventh day. What does that mean? Well, God's holy. Holiness is the essence of his character. He's distinct. He's, he's separate. So when the Scripture says that God made the seventh day holy, it means he set it apart for his use. He gave it to us to be part of our worship, part of our service to him. Now, that's, that's straightforward enough, I think. And I would bet that almost everyone in this room agrees that this is what those words mean. The problem is that this statement comes when it does in the Bible. You know, I think the widespread belief of many Christians today is that the Sabbath was something for the days of Moses, and it's been superseded by the New Testament. You know, people put it differently. Uh, Some will say that now every day is a Sabbath, others that we, unlike our Old Testament brethren, have found our Sabbath rest in Christ. But these verses pose a problem for that way of thinking about the Sabbath. For here, the seventh day is made holy, not only long before Moses came on the scene in Exodus, but even before the fall of man into sin in Genesis 3. You know, we've said the first two chapters of Genesis introduce us to these fundamental structures of human life as God made it. He talks about dominion, rule over the creation, marriage, family, a rhythm of work and a day of rest. We've said that theologians call these structures, these institutions, if you will, creation ordinances, because the Scripture lays them down as fundamental to a full human life already here at the very beginning. And as so fundamental to God's intention for human life that they're woven, they're actually woven into the fabric of human life right here at the very outset, long before sin came into the world. You know, In other words, these, these verses teach that the rhythm of work and rest, labor and holiday that we find in God's creation week was intentionally made the pattern of human life from the very, very beginning. Now, I don't think we ever imagine that marriage or family or work don't continue to be fundamental structures of human life. We know they are. But how then is it possible for some to extract the Sabbath day from these other creation ordinances, and consider it alone to have been abolished. No, the observing or keeping holy the Sabbath day seems on any straightforward reading of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, to be the divine purpose for human life perpetually. You know, I think the Israelites and we are being urged here by Moses to believe that God established the Sabbath day for mankind and for all time. You know, it's God who's given us a holiday every week. It's God who has invited us to enjoy a day free from ordinary work, a day we can devote to worshiping Him and enjoying the richest features of human life. Now, of course, we can, we do, we have, very often come to resent the obligation to keep the Lord's day holy in one way or another at one time or another we resent all the commandments of God from having no other gods but God to having to obey our parents from sexual purity to contentment with God's provision for our lives we often resent keeping those commandments only that people have not wanted to keep the Lord's day holy should surprise no one who knows the human heart. And of course, people have misinterpreted the obligation of the Lord's Day as they've misinterpreted all the rest of God's commandments throughout the ages. The true purpose and blessing of the Sabbath has often been buried under thick layers of misunderstanding. You know, as if God had made the day to test our mettle as if he has made the day to test our loyalty rather than to give us a gift, as if it were to be be the worst day of the week instead of the best. Now, who better to teach us how to keep the Sabbath than Jesus himself, the only man who ever kept the fourth commandment perfectly his entire life? Now, think about it. For Jesus, the Sabbath was a day of good food. It was a day of good fellowship with close friends. Often over sumptuous meals that someone took time to cook and serve. And as well as a day for spending time with people he hardly knew who had asked him to grace their, their Sabbath table. He took walks with his disciples took advantage of opportunities to help others. You know, how much has to be wrong with a person's view of life for him to resent being given a whole day to worship with the people of God, to share a meal with friends, to be of some help to others, or to take a nap? You know, if that seems to bur- a burden to us, what does that say about us? You know, once upon a time, we read this, I think uh, Marty read this this morning. Jesus was caught with his disciples one Sabbath day picking grain out of the field because they were hungry. Well, the Jewish behavior police called him on it for breaking the Sabbath. Do you remember what he said to him? Marty read it this morning. The Sabbath was made for man, not a man for the Sabbath. You know, he said that to these Pharisees. These Pharisees had missed the whole point. They had buried the pure law and the Lord's holy day under a mass of these man-made regulations and interpretations. No, Jesus said it's a gift. It's not a burden, and I, and I think we 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 need to be we should be careful to be sure that we're treating it that way teaching our children and our grandchildren to think of it that way. You now, if we want to keep the Sabbath day holy, we should, I think we should ask ourselves questions kind of like this. How can I make this day for me, for my family, and for others I know, the very best, the very happiest day of the week, the day we're going to regret coming to an end? How can I make this day a day of rest in the truest and deepest deepest sense of that wonderful word? What can I do on this day to decrease any restlessness that I might have stored up inside of me or help, help others to deal with their restlessness? You know, the Bible tells us only a few things. The main things we should include in the Lord's day, most is left to us. But it does expect us to observe the day as those who know it's the Lord's day. It's the Lord's gift to us. We know it's a holy day precisely because it was meant to help us live a holy life. You know, the Sabbath was for the Lord Christ as it has been for countless saints through the ages, including us, a holiday every week, the best day of the week a day that was kept free for the best things of life. You know, at least what godly folks would think are the best things of life. Dear ones, there are a thousand good and happy and holy things that could be done on the Sabbath day. A thousand ways to make it both the Lord's holy day and a day of rest and refreshment and renewal for ourselves. You know, God could have made us to work every day. He could have done it. You know, after all, we could rest at night. But it was God's goodness to grant us a holiday every seven days. I, I don't know about this, but why do human beings all over the world love and crave holidays? I'll tell you why. It's because their generous maker wove the need for them into the very fabric of their being. To love a holiday. Holiday is originally a holy day, after all. To love a holiday is to be like God. You now, If we don't use this holiday for the purposes for which God gave it to us, this gift, like all of his other gifts, marriage, family, fulfilling work, these gifts will inexorably lead us away from him instead of toward him. It always does. It always will. So I think we need to think about that. Ponder it as we head off into a new year. You know, we should be men and women that love the Lord's Day and love to keep it holy. We should teach our families, wives, husbands, children, grandchildren, to find it natural, even an honor, to turn down the world's invitation to use this day just like any other day in order to keep the Lord's Day holy to Him. And I will tell you this, if we do, and they do, we will be a holy people, and we will be a very happy people, bound to one another, and God's kingdom will be extended. And my prayer is that God would make it so in this dear, wonderful, and blessed congregation in 2020. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this powerful word. We ask that you work it into our hearts and help us to see your provision of a blessed and holy seventh day of creation as a blessed gift and a great engine of our faith and personal holiness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.